Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording in my home office with potential special guest appearances from my cat Chicken, uh, or maybe uh, the washing machine in the bathroom. You know, you're, you're never quite sure. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that has influenced their own work in some small way. And today, I'm very excited to have writer, author, Tanana Rave do with me. Hi! Hi, great to be here. Um, so it's lovely to see your face. You are yes. one of my favorite Twitter people. And thank um, you. You too. I, I mean, it's so great to place a face to the Twitter handle. Yes, it's it's um just a, a lovely thing where I get to kind of meet and see people uh over the Zoom. I wish you were in the studio, but you know, it's just not with those days. Um it's not. so for those of you who need a little introduction into Tanana Reeves' work, please let me give you that introduction. Tanana Reeve is an award-winning author who teaches Black horror and Afrofuturism at UCLA. Born in Florida, she was highly influenced by her late mother, Patricia Stevens-Dew's career as a civil rights activist, which led her to a career in journalism first, actually. Um, While she was working as a columnist for Miami Herald, she completed her first novel called The Between. And it's a play on the cosmic horror tradition, exploring the disintegration of a psyche and a marriage simultaneously. Um, Since then... Tanana Reeve has been considered a leading voice in Black speculative fiction for the past 20 years or more. She has won an American Book Award, an an NAACP Image Award, and a British Fantasy Award, and her writing has been included in Best of the Year anthologies. Her books include Ghost Summer Stories, My Soul to Keep, and The Good House. And uh, she and her late mother actually co-authored Freedom in the Family, a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights as well. So in 2019, however, she officially made the big move into film, executive producing Shudder's groundbreaking documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, where you see her featured pretty prominently. And she and her husband collaborator, Stephen Barnes, then wrote the episode A Small Town for season two of The Twilight Zone on CBS All Access. She's kind of developed a, uh, a an encyclopedic knowledge of all things uh, horror and especially black horror. And um, she has multiple projects that she can't talk about necessarily right now <laughs> that I know. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but some may involve ad- adaptations, some may involve original work but just assume that they are in the process and that she will talk about them at a future date. And uh, she lives in Southern California with her husband, son Jason, and two cats. So she is a cat-friendly person, which is wonderful for our podcast, as you can see. I love to see the kitty in the back. I also have a kitty (laughs) over here, but he's off camera. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Tanana Reeve, the movie that you chose to talk about today is Us. Yes. Can you give us a little explanation on why that's one of your fave genre films? Well, Get Out was taken. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I'm a fanatic. I Ashley Nicole Black, you gotta blame her. <laughs> I am a fanatic for get for Jordan Peele. So let me just say that. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I started teaching my black horror course at UCLA because of mm-hmm. Get Out. I called my class The Sunken Place. He actually asked me to write the introduction on the black horror aesthetic in the annotated screenplay for The Sunken Place. So, or rather for Get Out. So when Us came out, I, I can't explain how excited I was. I was full of anticipation. And the way it was billed was just a Black family on vacation and sort of bad things happen. And it's pretty weird to think that in the year 2020, I honestly can't think of a movie that is just that. I mean, Us is so much more than that that I don't even count that 
as a black family on vacation and bad things happen, you know, but that movie where you're Mm -hmm. in the cabin and there's a noise, it's like, what's that? You know, we haven't had that movie with a black family. So I thought just that alone would be groundbreaking. But uh, I, you know, I I got a chance to see an early screening Uh, again, Twitter strikes again, Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele reached out literally via Twitter, like want to see it. Yeah, <laughs> is this really you? And yes, I do. So um, my husband Steve and I went to Monkey Paw, and th- this was pre-COVID, obviously, and sat in in their little private screening room, just the two of us. Someone taking notes, I guess, every time we had a reaction. <laughs> I love it. Just like <laughs> they studiously la- watching. They you. laughed. Wait, where is this at the eight minute mark? <laughs> but so I'm sitting there full of anticipation. And I'm thrilled. And then as the movie goes on and I realize it's not just a black family on vacation movie. It is like so much more than that. It's like a whole, there was no way to be prepared for what it was, especially when you compare it to Get Out, right? Get Out is a very straightforward story of a weekend Mm -hmm. visit gone wrong. Whereas Us is like a worldwide takeover (laughs) by the tethered uh, with a flashpoint you know, centered around this black family. And it has this completely different sensibility than I was expecting. So while I was sitting there absolutely thrilled watching the movie and how it was surprising me with all these layers, I was also a little scared because I was like, oh my God, what are the audiences going to make of this movie? Are they going to, you know, I was just like, Mm because I want Jordan Peele to get all the wins, right? All the success. And it's such... um, in some ways, a complex story, an unusual story uh, that I really wondered, will mainstream audiences be able to wrap their minds around this movie? So, of course, we reported back to people. We love it. We love it. We love it. But I had these secret anxieties that that the audiences might not be able to embrace it. And I was so excited when it actually went on to perform just as well, as far as I know, as Get Out did in the, in the box yeah. office. So that was exciting. Yeah. And that's something actually that we're going to talk about when we get into the conversation too, just like this weird expectations that are placed upon you when you have this kind of like freshman success. Um, But for those of you who haven't seen us, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, that's a great motto. If you would like to pause and watch (laughs) us first, this is your shot. It's kind of their fault. It came out like last February. I I mean, it's hard to believe it even came out in 2019 because it already seems like 10 years years ago but it was like no it was last february (laughs) i'm like time doesn't exist it doesn't matter anymore so you guys if you want to pause and watch it first like go ahead otherwise you know i'm just going to introduce us with a short synopsis so written and directed by jordan peele us stars lupita nyong'o as adelaide a woman whom we first meet as a little girl as she wanders into a mirrored funhouse on the santa cruz boardwalk and she is met by her mysterious doppelganger inside And we kind of leave that story and we go to where Adelaide is an adult now. And she is on a trip with her beautiful family, husband Gabe and daughter and son Zora and Jason. Jason, isn't that weird that that's also your son's name? It is. I was literally just thinking the same thing. I was like, ooh. Um, So... Adelaide is nervous about returning to Santa Cruz. It's crowded there and like there's weirdos at the beach and 
I- I'm not going to that beach. We're not going. And she's going to meet up with uh, their family uh, friends who are rich white people, Josh and Kitty, and their twin daughters who are basically too preoccupied with their rich people possessions and desires to notice or care that Adelaide is kind of struggling socially here. You good? Yeah. What? I have a hard time just, you know, talking. Oh, I get that. Yeah, no, I totally get that. On the beach, Jason gets freaked out when he sees a bleeding man seemingly looking at him. But, you know, we move away from that. At night, the family then gets a visit from four people in red jumpsuits standing in their driveway. Okay, we lost power. Go back to bed. There's a family in our driveway. Okay, oh no, what is happening? They invade the family's home and hold them captive, revealing themselves to be the family's doppelgangers. And they're pissed. In essence, these people are called tethered. They are the shadow selves of the family, doomed to live in pain uh, below the surface. There was a girl. And the girl had a shadow. The two were connected, tethered together. When the girl ate, her food was given to her warm and tasty. But when the shadow was hungry, she had to eat rabbit raw and bloody. Well, um, they're tired of doing that, and they're ready to kill off their tethered so they can be free. After that, four fights ensue, and Gabe manages to kill his tethered, and the family escapes from the others on a boat to Josh and Kitty's house. Unfortunately, that whole family has been murdered, and Adelaide and Gabe have to kill those tethereds, too. I'm driving. Zora, no. I have the highest kill count in the family. You don't have the highest kill count. I killed both twins. Wrong. I just killed the second one. I killed Kitty. So that's one, 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 and two. I killed two. I killed myself and Josh, so. The news then shows that this is happening all over the country, and they have to make a plan. So they drive away in their friend's car and evade Zora's tethered. But Adelaide's tethered, Red, is still out there somewhere. They get to the boardwalk, and Pluto sets a trap for them. But Jason outsmarts him. Then Red kidnaps Jason, and Adelaide embarks on a mission of her own, descending a stairway into an underground tunnel where she finds Red. Red explains to her that the Tethereds are revolting and will enact revenge. I didn't just need to kill you. I needed to make a statement that the whole world would see. It's our time now. Adelaide manages to kill Red and save Jason. They ascend up to the boardwalk and escape in a car with their family. Oh, wow, is this the happy ending? But as they drive away, Adelaide tells Jason the story when she first met Red all those years ago. Twist! Red is actually the real Adelaide, and her tethered switched places with her that night in the funhouse. Jason looks at his mother, thoroughly unnerved. Okay. um, So you do spoilers, spoilers. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yes. We do spoiler spoilers, which is like, it's so funny. We, we have a specific type of person who listens to the show who's like, okay with that. And you know what? Great. That's where we're going. Good for you. And you, and you described it so much better than I could have. So I'm glad I didn't have oh to do that God. part. 
writing synopses, my least favorite part of the show. <laughs> um, so I, I want to get into the fact that Jordan Peele, when he was putting this together, he was focusing um, on one specific image that kind of haunted him um, from when he was uh, younger, like I think 19 or something like that. Uh, and it had it had imprinted on him and he kind of brought it up for later use when he was designing the story. He said, quote, uh, and this is when he was uh, going to Sarah Lawrence. I love that he went to Sarah Lawrence, by the way. I'll never get over how great that is. Um, you get out of the train and you have to go down through an underpass and come out the other side. There's no one else there, just this dark American town. I'd come up and I'd look over to the other side and I'd picture seeing the tail end of myself going down that same tunnel to presumably emerge right near me 30 seconds later. And I can't be seen by that other version of me. And that's where I love to start with a horror story. What is this primal thing that's affecting me in a way I don't quite understand, end quote. And so he was having these like almost mass delusions to scare himself. Mm -hmm when he was going to Sarah Lawrence and then brought that back and he went with that image, that primal fear, and then crafted a story around that. Um, Boy, did he ever. I know. And it's a big story. There's a lot there. But can you talk a little bit about the idea of working from a single image or something that's kind of haunting you for a very long time. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's fascinating that that is his process. He tells a, a similar story about Get Out, which a lot of people don't realize did not have anything to do with race when he first started working on it. But it was this notion of being um, the fifth wheel, the person left out, a group of friends are together and you're the one on the outside. And I think also mm -hmm. a big dash of isolation he must have felt as a black mm -hmm. artist in Hollywood, um, where you're often the only person in the room. So he starts with this one nugget and you expand it out. And in this case, it's the idea of running into yourself, the doppelganger, which is just, I mean, that's not a fear I share. Although I did have an experience once where I was in a hotel and someone was like, wait a minute, weren't you just here? <laughs> and I always wonder, what did that person look like? Because in my experience, when people show you pictures of, that they think look like you, they look nothing like you. <laughs> this is what you think I look like? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever had that, but it's like, no. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> that is not. I don't even know where you're getting that. Maybe the same haircut, but not even. So that's not a particular shit. Mine would have been like a fear of like losing teeth, like having a loose tooth. And what is it? Your body falling oh apart. Oh, my God. That's yeah. my recurring nightmare. But um, oh, yeah. I love this thing. I, I, I do remember uh, during the times when I, I visited towns that had subways and mass transit, there's, there is something scary about those stations, especially when you're by yourself, uh, the shaking of the train, the noises, uh, the crowd. So I can see why he would be struck by this, this image of potentially running into yourself and what would that be like? And more importantly, what would that suggest about reality? Mm -hmm. which is where he took it with us. Uh, let's, if you take the premise sort of uh, at face value, if you did run into someone who was literally your doppelganger, not just a passing resemblance, but exactly like you, what would that mean besides you have a twin you didn't know about? What does that imply about the world? So I, he, I, he starts with that. He starts with the fear of the doppelganger and then a nice dash of... Um, looking at privilege, 
which I have to think as a young artist, not, I mean, not that young. No, I'm kidding. He's, he's still a young artist. <laughs> he's young. <laughs> but, but I only, I only um, add the caveat because he's been in the entertainment industry for a very long time, you know, um, mm-hmm. at TV and whatnot. So he's beyond that, that notion, although he's talked to me in an interview I did with him about how freaked out he was early in his career when people would just recognize him. And then, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that comes out at some point later because fame is very scary on that level all by itself. Mm-hmm. But he got, so he he's looking at privilege, I would have to think, and being his life being different than it was before, post Get Out, you won an, you know, post Oscar, I don't know how long he was working on us, but there's a very interesting passage <laughs> that he made as a young filmmaker struggling to get anyone to believe in his vision when he was making Get Out, as opposed to, oh, now I have this production company and I have a deal with Universal and a much bigger budget and expectations um, and a lot of privilege, a lot of privilege. So that isolation that he touched on in Get Out and that was a driving factor in Get Out is also a factor in uh, us. It's interesting, I think, that, and I don't want to jump ahead of your questions here, April, but of course I imagine a lot of the expectations of us were that it was going to be similar to get out in having a more overt racial statement. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not that us doesn't make a lot of racial statements, which I can talk to about about specifically, but us is about more than race. I, I think it's safe to say get out is mostly about race. Us is sort of about race, but it's mostly about this other thing. And this other thing, I think, is hidden in the title of of us, what the word implies. You know, I saw an interview re- uh, recently quoting him saying, if there's an us, there's a them. And I think this is something that we are seeing uh, very clearly in 2020, this idea of two different camps, uh, two different kinds of people who see the world in very different ways, how we other each other, you know, a whole bunch of Americans uh, who aren't white cis males have been othered by white cis males. Um, and then, you know, it's just human nature. We categorize people as of our tribe or outside of our tribe. I, I think and I'm going to I'm going to back up there because I don't want to miss this this point. There's something interesting too in this where um, he was saying that in Get Out, he specifically declared his character's uh, political uh, leanings, mm. their, who, the, who they were. He said, quote, I didn't declare what politics this family has, though, for a reason. I didn't have the equivalent of I would have voted for Obama a third time because I think that this film can be applied to so many different factions. Mm. When you look at our ability to point the finger at the other, whether in fear, whether in hatred, whether we're right or not, that shouldn't interfere with our ability to point the finger inward as well, end quote. Um, and I don't want to I don't want to miss that because I think that that's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing that he he decided to to actively not give um, uh, us the the crutch of knowing where they stood politically or who they were. There's just like there's a little bit we can make assumptions because of their race. Oh, yeah. But it's not I was just thinking I make I made all kinds of assumptions <laughs> based on their race. But one thing that happens and, and and this isn't exclusive to people who who have money. But, you know, there are a lot of black celebrities who are making the news up at a close to male black male celebrities, I should say, for the most part, making the news in the run up to the election coming out like Kanye West coming out as Trump supporters and and rappers. And, and, you know, you can't help but 
notice how financially based that allegiance felt right like the the mm-hmm. play like this idea that the republican party is kind of for rich people and i don't mean to be reductive here but it's going to sound very reductive when i say this <laughs> you know <laughs> when you covet status and when you covet acceptance by white supremacy uh it's it's kind of like a passage you, that some people take you know it's like you can leave your old politics behind and and embrace the politics of your new friends or the people you aspire to be more importantly which is why people who aren't rich yeah. still are like well i might be one day and doggone it i want my taxes to be low yeah it's the american <laughs> dream which is what we're talking about too i i need to i need to stop though and ask you know when when you're constructing your stories are you do you do you name their politics do you make it vague or like does it help you to name their politics in any way Um, does it make you feel like you have to right now because things are just so weird or that's such an interesting question because i I, having been raised by civil rights activists i mean my father john dew is still living he's a civil rights lawyer still you know gives classroom visits and writes essays and is always trying to solve racism and my late mother patricia stevens dew jailed for 49 days with her sister, my aunt Priscilla Krause, for sitting at a lunch counter in 1960 and being and, and was tear gassed in 1960 to the extent that by a police officer who threw a tear gas canister into her face, I want to clarify, so that mm-hmm. for the rest of her adult life, she wore dark glasses, even indoors. I, I rarely saw her without dark glasses on because she had this sensitivity to light. And when I wrote my first novel, The Between, I really tried to capture them and politics were definitely a part of the novel. They were, uh, the, the woman was a lawyer, the husband was a social worker. It, you know, there are a lot of social justice and, uh, and medical justice issues and AIDS and, and um, there's a white supremacist as the villain. So that first book is just dripping in, in, in politics. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't remember thinking about it consciously after that, for the most part, I mean, yeah, in my novel, The Good House, when she opens up her t-shirt drawer, her t-shirts are proclaiming her politics, a woman's choice, straight but not narrow. You know, literally, I like go through like three or four slogans (laughs) that that she's wearing uh, on her t-shirts. But I do think that because the protagonists I write are black, and for the most part, so many of them are just different versions of me. Like this would be me if I were a man. This would be me if I had had this background. Um, I assume their politics just the way I, I obviously did when I was watching us. I mean, no, he didn't really proclaim the politics, but Gabe is wearing a Howard University sweatshirt. That's an HBCU, which to me is kind of a political statement because HBCUs struggle and 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 have you have to overcome sort of this stereotype that a traditionally black college isn't going to give you a good education that even some black students believe, you know. Um, yeah. So that to me is political. That says to me, oh, he's down, you know, he's down. Yeah. Um, but clearly. They are also infected with this desire to keep up with the Joneses. And while it might not have affected their politics yet, it's affecting the decisions they're making as they're raising their kids. I mean, you know, okay, so her parents took her to Santa Cruz when she was a kid. So it makes sense. You're going to take your kids to Santa Cruz. But also they're very racially isolated in Santa Cruz. Like there's this one aerial shot where they're like, you can almost see they're the only black bodies on the expanse of this entire beach. And I know black 
adults who have vacation there who say that's how they felt. It's like you're the only ones. And as parents, and my parents made this choice, they moved me into newly integrated neighborhoods when I was young. I live in an area that has growing diversity, but not the kind of diversity I would have hoped for my son. And these are the kinds of choices that we make for our families. They can't help where we're raising them, what schools are sending them to, where they might be subjected to uh more racism because of the choices we're making, you know? Um, but it's in coveting the lifestyle of those who have a little bit more than you do. And if I were gonna make some guesses about Gabe, uh, he went to Howard, he probably, he might've come from a family that struggled. Uh, and he's trying to keep up with the Joneses. He's, you know, he has to have the nice boat. It's like he has to have the boat that has the same accessories as his friend's boat. You know, they're, the car has, you know, it's all the trying to keep up stuff. You're, you're making some great points, but uh, I need to take a quick break and I want to pick up exactly where we left sure. off. So uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back talking a lot more us and Tanana Rave's career as well. We'll be right back. Hi, it's me, Dave Hill, from before, here to tell you about my brand new show on Maximum Fun, the Dave Hill Good Time Hour, which combines my old Maximum Fun show, Dave Hill's podcasting incident, with my old radio show, The Goddamn Dave Hill Show, into one new futuristic program from the future. If you like delightful conversation with incredible guests, technical difficulties, and actual phone calls from real-life listeners, you've just hit a street called easy. I'm also joined by my incredible co-host, the boy criminal Chris Gersbeck. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Dave. It's really great. That's to... enough, Chris. And New Jersey chicken rancher, Des. Say hi, Des. Hey, Dave. The Dave Hill Good Time Hour. Brand new episodes every Friday on Maximum Fun. Plus, the show's not even an hour. It's 90 minutes. Take that, stupid rules. We nailed it. And welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Tanana Reeve Du, and we are talking about us. Um, so you made an excellent point. You were talking about the the clothing that people were wearing in your novel, and then also the the Howard sweatshirt and the clothing that they're wearing in us. And I have to say, um, you're playing right into my hands and my talking points um, because <laughs> there's a lot to be made of Gabe's Howard um, University sweatshirt. And there's a very specific conversation that um, Jordan Peele was having with his costumer um, when they were designing what this family was going to wear and this kind of signal. And, and it almost felt, you know, uh, Gabe wearing that Howard sweatshirt, it felt like um, uh I'm trying to remember the words that he said, but essentially it was just like they're signaling who they want the world to see them as, mm. not necessarily as mm. who they are, mm. but how they wish the world would see them. Mm. And um, and I think that that's a really cool and interesting tension, especially when you're talking about this idea that like maybe he came from a place that struggled and but he still wants to keep up with the Joneses. And it's just like And kind especially of, he wants to keep up with the Joneses, you know. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and and I think and also, you know, here's a, another thing that they're talking about in terms of um doing the costuming for for Adelaide. Um they said, quote, I wanted her to be the lantern that led her family. Along the way that light is continually flickering. She's getting more and more and more covered in blood. Mm -hmm. The idea was that by the film's end, she's almost as red as red. Mm -hmm. It's all about a neutral palette for her, though. What she chooses to really gen uh, is really generic, and anyone can project onto it whatever they want to see, end quote. 
And I think that that's just a really kind of brilliant um, stroke of, of costuming in, in those yeah, moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I noticed that you bring it up, she is wearing this white sort of hoodie style, uh, actually kind of nice top. I wish I had one like it. Uh, I know. I was just like, where'd you get that? <laughs> but yeah, and it is becoming more and more blood spattered. Um, so yeah, that's fascinating. And I hadn't even seen the connection between what I had just said about my character's own t-shirts and the Howard University sweatshirt. So that's so funny. You said, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I, I was going to actually that connection ask you. I hadn't even noticed that. But I'm, I'm looking at a picture of it, which is why I thought of it. And it's interesting because Gabe, I, after about the fifth viewing of us, I started to realize how much Gabe was like Jordan Peele. Um, mm -hmm. And some of it was just from having met and conducted interviews with Jordan Peele, his nervous habit of pushing his glasses up on his face. Gabe mm -hmm. pushes his glasses up on his face, uh, even though obviously he has a much bigger build than Jordan Peele. He's one of these big men who does not lean into his physique, almost like to shrink himself, I would say. And he doesn't have uh, a naturally assertive nature. He doesn't want to confront anyone in the yard. It's like almost at, Adelaide's prodding, you know, that he's going to be confrontational. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's his now it's his role as the man and the biggest person in the house where he has to. It's almost like he's trying on a voice when he says, All right, now, if you know, like he's what he is like, it doesn't sound at all like him. He's putting, he's acting. Now, I thought I already done told y'all to get off my property, okay? So if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Now the cops are already on their way. Right? He's acting. Yes. Whereas if my son were doing it, my son is 16, he would he would be very naturally confrontational. Uh, it's not acting for him. <laughs> and he's also very big. So I, it's interesting to see Jordan Peele in that character sort of hidden inside of Winston Duke. Although, as you point out, uh, Jordan Peele went to Sarah Lawrence College, not to Howard University. So I had seen the, the sweatshirt as sort of uh, um, a tribute and homage to the audience, you know, the intended audience of the film, which is black. As he's told me, you know, in my class at UCLA, mm -hmm. he creates his work for everyone. But what he said of Get Out, and he, I think he said it in Horror Noir, if, if it doesn't work for the black audience, it's a fail. And, you know, and, and this is a little projection on my part. So I'm going to just uh, take some liberties <laughs> here. But yeah. I would imagine that growing up biracial and raised by a white mother, that Jordan Peele had many moments like I had in childhood, even though I had two black parents and they were civil rights activists, because they were pioneering and moving into these newly integrated neighborhoods. I was often surrounded by white students. I was bused into the black school with the white students, which was not a good look. I'm just going to say. So my nickname was Oreo, which is black on the outside, white on the inside. I did not have my son's talent for code switching, where he has no trouble at all blending in with any people he's talking to you know uh, mm -hmm. I often say you know you are from the suburbs so <laughs> but he just he's a natural mimic and if I had been a natural mimic and I had been good at code switching I probably wouldn't have been called an Oreo so I had this ironic situation where I had deep deep love almost reverence for my people and their history but in real life um there was a, a lot of bristly sort of interaction and, I, and it 
took me a long time to find my social circle uh, because of various situations. It was like college, grad school, work life. I mean, I, I found that groove, you know, but mm-hmm. I always did feel like an outsider, you know, uh, not biracial, but because of uh, the neighborhood I lived in. So it was mm-hmm. income based, which is yeah. what's happening here in us. You know, I mean, yeah. they are and a very rarefied social strata for black Americans. And it is difficult to sort of find your way, find your place as much as you can see the humanity in everyone. Um, you're all, you're always going to run into the racism at some point, you know, and, and, and how you deal with that steers your politics. It steers, you know, it's so, so there's a lot to it, feeling like an outsider, an outsider looking in. And I think this movie feels very much like a love letter uh, to his audience. And one of the interviews I conducted with him had to do with the intentional blackness of us, as he put it, because here's where it gets deep. I mean, think about this, Lupita Nyong'o, one of our best actresses, one of the best mm-hmm. actresses in the world, okay, had never had a leading role she won her Oscar for 12 Years a Slave, but she had, at the time he cast her, he had, she had never been cast in a lead because Hollywood is not in the habit or was not. It's changing. It's changing very quickly, as a matter of fact, for something that didn't change for a long time. When it finally did change, it's changing very rapidly. Yeah, it's everything. Yeah, to <laughs> but, but, but so it's, when I say it's not about race, that's actually not true because it, it's all about race. It's all about her being a dark-skinned black woman. It's about hiring children who look like they are the product of two dark-skinned black people, you know? Um, I want to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up right again where we started before, because I have a lot of talking points from what you just said that I want to get to. So we'll be right back. Macho man to the top rope. The flying elbow, the cover. We've got a new champion! We're here with Macho Man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, Match? I'm going to go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast, oh yeah. Tell us more about this podcast. It's the podcast of power, too sweet to be sour, funky like a monkey, woke discussions, man, and jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices, myself excluded. Yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Saturdays on Maximum Fun. Oh, yeah. Dig it. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Tanana Reevdu, and we are talking about us. Um, you were talking about monsters and letting people be monsters, um, and specifically letting, for instance, a, a dark-skinned Black woman be a monster. And I want to hit on some point that Jordan Peele was talking about with regard to creating monsters that mm. I think is going to resonate with you and how you kind of create your own evil in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, quote, um, there's this sort of gray area between villain and protagonist that I like. The audience is invited to relate to or to be attracted to this outcast of some sort. So yeah, I think being able to look with compassion at a monster as a writer is one of those things that allows you to hit a note that the audience isn't expecting, end quote. And so I, th- I think that 
you know, it feels like that might be the key of like trying to give these people roles like who who don't get to see themselves as monsters mm. uh, is finding a way to still be compassionate about them and and towards them um, and to allow them to be real and full still, even if they are quite evil at times or react in evil ways. Yeah, what happens with my character in the story, and I, I won't name it, it's in my short story collection, so it goes summer. So if people have read it or want to buy it, feel free. But uh, <laughs> but it's a short story and in the adaptation, uh, well, first of all, I wrote it for an anthology that was supposed to be about the protagonist as the monster. And, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I created this story. And in the adaptation, I want to do a misdirection. Because she's a woman, she lives alone, she's moving to a new place, the house is in terrible shape. We empathize with her. She's trying to start over. She's at her lowest. And at a certain point, you're going to realize, oh, my God, this woman is uh, a predator in real life. And that real life predation is being somehow mirrored by magic into an actual transformation into a monster. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how, that's the thing about predators is except for the thing that makes them predators, they are just like us. They love their kids. They, you know, they take pride in, in good work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they, they see themselves as good people, you know, uh, but in their minds, there's a line in our society that we have drawn that they do not see, or if they see it, they may castigate themselves, but they just can't help crossing it. It's a compulsion, right? So there, there's so much us, 80% us, 20% that other thing. And that's what makes it so scary, I think, uh, the monstrous and the human monstrous. Because I think to a degree we do have a fear and a legitimate fear that one day we're going to look in a mirror and we are that monster. You know, We're that mm-hmm. villain in, in somebody else's story from their childhood. We're that villain in your child's story of their childhood. That's, that's, that's what scares me. Yeah. That's good fodder. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you write horror. And and that's us literally, you know, she is that monster in the mirror and yet Adelaide, I mean, no, she's not. Adelaide did what she had to do. She had to get out. Okay. Yeah. She, she had to get out. She was a prisoner. She found a way. Okay, she, she kidnapped this other girl, but whatever. <laughs> she had to get out. She has a right to a childhood, too. Yeah. I mean, I I don't fault. I, I think the mark of, like, a great villain in some ways is, like, that I don't fault certain people for doing what they're doing, for for whatever kind of uh, acts that they've committed, where I'm like, ah, I see it. It makes sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about realism versus quote unquote realism mm. in movies, uh, because we talk, I'll think, I think we talk a lot when it comes to genre about how characters would react in emergency situations, oh my God. how we're, yes. we think that they react, right? And it's not, it's not like, there's no set in stone way of how people react, but we decide that there is. And then we kind of like conduct our, or, you know, construct our realism based around that. But the way that Jordan Peele was talking about it, because people were like, oh, why are, why is this family getting into an argument when they're trying to escape? And he said, quote, you have to try to portray as real a world as possible. The reality of how we act in emergency is not necessarily what we assume. Sometimes somebody says something to break the ice or break 
break the tension. Other times we'll get caught up in something petty, even in in an emergency. So what I'm trying to do is actually make something that feels more realistic than your average genre film and that there's a lot of ways that we respond, end quote. Mm. Um, And I appreciate that. And I you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get studio notes that are like, why would they do this? Uh, or well, I love I love hearing your interview snippets because they're different from all of mine. I was like, I've never heard that. But, but <laughs> the part of that question I thought we were going for, and I love that it's even beyond that, is unrealistic reactions and horror and how they can jerk you out of the movie. You know, if you're constantly saying to yourself, oh, why are, why are they doing that? Why, why didn't she just tell the guy? <laughs> That's the one I hate when something mm-hmm. horrible has happened that seems to be supernatural and the witness just kind of shrugs it off <laughs> and doesn't mention it to anybody. I mean, we know no one will believe them and we all have to get that scene out of the way, but still, yeah. it's not realistic that you wouldn't mention that to somebody. I just thought I saw the weirdest thing. I'm, a, I'm really scared right now. Uh, I'm So anyway, his way of addressing that, and it, it also, again, speaks to this question of realism and his philosophy about this is that if your characters, if someone in the cast is representing the audience's questions, mm-hmm. you can get away with it. Right. So that scene where, yeah. where the car has hit Umbre, who is the daughter's doppelganger and um, Umbre mm-hmm. has gone flying into a tree kind of reminds me of that scene of the dead deer actually in get out and Adelaide jumps out of the car. Now we know after we've seen the movie that she's jumping out of the car for way more complex reasons that we might have assumed. Like, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, while you're watching the movie, it just seems like she maybe she's going to make sure she's dead or maybe she's supposed as a kid. Maybe she can't help the maternal instinct, even though this kid is trying to kill her family, you know. But, but what, mm-hmm. and it is those things, actually, again, because of that 80% of us that is just human and just humans have certain behaviors and you're going to go check on this kid and the dad says oh and your mom's getting out of the car you know like and it's a funny moment it's acknowledging that what she's doing is stupid right Uh, Mm -hmm. in the sense of survival tactics but it buys us just that minute where the audience can cannot be thinking why the hell is she doing right like gabe has addressed it we're, we're done with that, you know? Yeah. And I think more horror filmmakers are also adding those. And oh, and I, uh, Jordan Peele, I think, is also someone who would, who would have characters not behave in the silly ways that we've seen in so many horror movies over so many years. Like that it's almost a point, as he said in Horror Noir, to address that skeptical black audience member who's yelling at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not going to make those movies. Nobody wants to be that person (laughs) where the audience is yelling at your characters for being stupid. I actually pride myself on creating characters who catch on fast, think fast, are way braver than they think they are, Mm -hmm. and and figure it out. You know what I mean? Or if they don't figure it out, they're at least going to try to retreat in smart ways. (laughs) You know, it's smart. Yeah. I just have no patience for author convenience that renders characters like completely um, stupid in terms of facing either the danger itself or how you react after the danger. And and the way Jordan Peele unfolds his stories, it's very satisfying to me on that level. 
Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show thank and for you. talking about your work this and us. This was actually awesome. And I, I, oh, it I'm was, so really happy was. that we surprised you. That it <laughs> no, I mean, it's not that it was, but I didn't expect it to feel so much like a conversation with the, the other artists. So uh, if that's what you're doing here on the pod, you are doing great at it. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, and um, people should keep an eye out for your work coming up that you cannot talk about, but they can watch your, um, your uh, episode of um yes the twilight zone yeah they can watch your episode of the twilight zone from season two of episode CBS eight. all access yes. episode eight and um anything else that people should be keeping an eye out for or picking up well my short story collection ghost summer is about to go out on audio as of december 15th so awesome that is very exciting i love audiobooks so um i'm excited about that. and i got to read three of the stories my first time Oh, man. And we didn't even get to talk about voice work because I actually have a bunch of quotes from Lupita about voice work. Okay. We'll just talk about this another time. It was an experience. Okay. We will, though. So good to talk to you. Um, Try to have, you know, happy holidays. (laughs) Yes. Happy holidays. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group, too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash Switchblade Sisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Now the cops are already on their way. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.